0: This is TC Daily, the new technology show brought to you by Tech Central. I'm Duncan McLeod. You can subscribe to us on YouTube. Visit youtube.com slash techcentral. Hit the subscribe button and the bell icon and you'll never miss an episode. You can also get the latest tech news and views on techcentral.co.za. Get our daily newsletter at techcentral.co.za slash newsletter and you'll get the latest local international news delivered to your inbox every morning at 5 a.m. Now i'm joined today on tc daily by no stranger to tech central a former tech journalist turned entrepreneur and uh now published author simon dingle it's good to see you how are you doing
1: very well thanks and you duncan nice to see you again too nice.
0: yeah last time we chatted was uh, around the launch of your book uh, beyond bitcoin um are you working on any new books
1: um, not in practice. <laughs> there have there, been a few ideas, uh, you know, in my mind, but uh, but no, um, nothing, yeah. nothing that's uh, concrete yet. <laughs> right,
0: right, right. I, I must say I really enjoyed Beyond Bitcoin. When we spoke, I think I would got, got about a third or f- halfway through the book uh, as, as, <laughs> as these things happen, you know, <laughs> rushing to read them before an interview. But I finally finished it, enjoyed the audible version of the book. Um, it was very well narrated, I must say.
1: Yeah, we we were lucky with the uh, the artist. I suppose is the correct way to put it that uh, narrated the yep. book for us. Um, and I'm I'm impressed you actually <laughs> you actually read it. I think I think 99 of the people who interviewed us about the the book had only seen the title.
0: <laughs> uh. <laughs> well, it's actually a fascinating subject. How have sales gone?
1: I don't. I don't know really. So we were published through Icon um, in the UK, and um, they haven't shared sales figures with us yet. Um, I'm told it's going well. Um, there were also foreign language rights sold for a number of languages, including uh, Korean and Arabic, and I think those are on shelves now. But um, I haven't been to. Well, I haven't been exposed to the the sales figures, so who knows? <laughs>
0: right. Right, right, and you, wrote, you co-wrote that book, of course, with uh, Stephen Sidley, and uh, if uh, anyone's interested in uh, learning more, you can go back and have a listen to that podcast, which we did, when was it? About six months ago now. Yeah, it must have been. Must have been about that, yeah. yeah. So what are you up to these days, Simon? What's keeping you busy um, and out of trouble?
1: <laughs> well, you know, d- 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 before starting my own business or businesses, uh, I was involved with Curve in the UK and after that um, sort of went on an adventure to, to decide what to do next, and um, that's culminated in a, a few projects, and the ones that are keeping me most busy at the moment are ZARP, which is our stable coin project for the South African Rand, um, and our other business, Venox, which is a digital asset investment platform. Um, so just taking sort of uh, what I'd learned and was thinking about from the world of fintech and, and blockchain, um, and really applying that to to some projects um, that are grand experiments for now, um, but are I suppose a manifestation of of where I see this all going, uh, and time will tell <laughs> how accurately we're going to we're
0: going to talk a bit about where it's all going in this podcast today. And uh, you mentioned Zarp. I want to I want to start by, by by chatting a bit about Zarp and stable coins more broad, broadly. Um, okay. for those who are new to the world of crypto. Uh, let's start with the basics. What is a stablecoin? What is it? What is the objective of a stablecoin?
1: Okay, so stablecoin is a cryptocurrency like Ethereum or Bitcoin, which I'm sure your viewers will be familiar with um, The difference is that its price is pegged to a real-world asset um, So the most famous stablecoins are USDT or tether and USDC Which is um, issued by a company called circle in the States and those track the price of the US dollar Um, So that's what a stablecoin is. It's a cryptocurrency, but without the price volatility that we're used to with assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum.
0: Okay. So what purpose do
1: they serve? Multiple purposes. Um, I suppose the most obvious one is just as a general hedge against the volatility of digital assets. Um, So, you know, obviously... I think a lot of people who who are holding Bitcoin and ethereum and other digital assets at the moment see them as more of a, a speculative instrument and something that might will hopefully appreciate in price and you know they've heard the stories of people who got rich overnight which almost never true but <laughs> but uh, undoubtedly a lot of people have made a lot of money just by hanging on to these things um, so that's the that's the one use case. The other is is then you know to use as a, a settlement rails or in payments. So you can send that value around um, without having to um, you know withdraw funds back into the traditional banking system, for example. Um, so that's another another use case. Um, and uh, you know really the the sky's the limit from there. What I find exciting is the idea of programmable money. Um, and taking our existing currencies and making them compatible with decentralized finance. Um, so, you know, you can you can start building platforms and payment systems and financial instruments, et cetera, programmatically um, and automating processes and settlements, et cetera, um, with a kind of money that can be programmed. Um, and I think that's really... The great innovation of Bitcoin is that um, it introduced the idea of programmable money to the world, or, or money for the internet, as Mark Andreessen likes to say, because really that was the the one protocol that was missing um, from the internet and, until Bitcoin came along. Um, you know, in the internet. First sprang up, we had TCPIP as a protocol for sending simple packets of information back and forth, and then hypertext was developed as a, as a protocol for presenting information online and starting to develop content. Um, we had codecs as protocols for transporting voice over the internet, and that enabled telephony and skype and you know what we 're doing right now recording this over the internet. So we have this stack of protocols that enable all sorts of applications on the internet, but what we didn 't have a protocol for was was money. And, and that, I, I think, was really the, the first principles thinking that, that was behind PayPal. or what, I think it was called uh, X at first. Um yes, uh, You know, with, with yeah, with, with Peter Thiel and, and Elon Musk and the pioneers of PayPal, Rudolf Boerter, there's South African connection. There always is two South well, African Musk connections. Owns <laughs> X. Com, in fact. Oh, does he? Sure, that must be he worth does. a bundle. <laughs> <laughs> <That must be. laughs> yeah. But, you know, that was really the thinking was that um, you know, money doesn't have a protocol on the internet at all. Value, settlement, the financial system is missing protocols. And we took technologies like credit cards, which were invented in the 1950s. I don't think people always realize exactly how old credit card technology is. And we shoehorned them into working online, but they weren't of the internet, <laughs> you know. Um, and and it had disastrous consequences. I mean, you know, credit card fraud took on a whole new um, level of of activity when when it met the internet. And so, Bitcoin for the first time was going. Well, he has a protocol for 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 money, and and that's quite a significant thing, because it means that you finally get the internet doing to the financial world what it did to every other industry. We saw what the internet's effect was, you know, on media, on photography, on. You know, everything else we do in the world, <laughs> um, and now we 're seeing it do the same things to the world of finance because there 's a protocol for that now and so stable coins come along and go, okay well that 's great and Bitcoin is fantastic. Some people would argue it's the best form of money we 've ever had, others would say it's the best store of value we 've ever had. Um, there are a lot of interesting discussions to get into around bitcoin specifically, um, but stable coins take you know all of all of that that good thinking around you know consensus mechanisms. Um proof of work or proof of stake et cetera um distribution and apply that to to traditional value of of currency
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. fascinating stuff and we 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 actually covered a lot of lot of the DeFi, decentralized finance stuff in the discussion we had with yourself and stephen uh those six months ago or so so i'm not going to rehash mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> that in a lot of detail today but let's talk let's talk a little bit more
1: about um about uh, ZARP uh z a r p does it stand for something? Well, as you, you know, ZAR is sort of the currency ticker for the RAND, um, and P just stands for PEG because our coin is pegged to the oh. price of the RAND. So oh, RAND PEG, sense. I suppose you could think of it as. Yeah.
0: Do mm-hmm. coins have to be pegged to the value of a, a fiat currency, or can they be pegged to the value of anything?
1: They can be pegged to the value of anything. I suppose the, the, the next obvious question is how. So we've seen, we've yeah. seen uh, cryptocurrencies that are pegged to the price of gold, for example. And traditionally, the way that you peg any currency to another is you have a treasury of the asset that you're trying to peg somewhere. So if you're going to issue a cryptocurrency that's pegged to the price of gold, my first question for you would be, well, where are the gold bars that are backing that value? <laughs> you know, why, why is it worth uh, the price of a gold bar? Um, and, and so that really is the trick. is, is Are you going to collateralize this with the actual asset that, that it's pegged to? Um, or are you going to come up with something more extravagant, and, and some have, for example. So, you know, the MakerDAO platform has enabled a, a U.S. dollar stable coin called DAI. Um, and they do actually have a treasury, but it's more exotic than just dollars in a bank somewhere. It's actually digital assets that are backing the um, the, the price of DAI. And ironically, um, if you, you know, look at at that situation today, it's predominantly USDC, which is got literal cash reserves <laughs> sitting um, you know in with financial institutions in the states that's backing uh, the price of DAI. Yeah. Um, but yeah I mean you know theoretically you could create a stable coin for the price of anything and I think that we will in time. So you know part of our hypothesis is that in the future you'll see the tokenization of everything. So you know today's equities um, would probably be tokenized, all fiat currencies are already being tokenized, that process is underway. Um, but you know, futures and and every financial derivative you can imagine, um, we seem being tokenized in the future um, using using similar sort of principles. Is that the whole idea behind NFTs, or am I misreading it? Uh, NFTs have a role to play in this all, and I think that's what a, you know what many people overlook in the discussion around NFTs or non-fungible tokens um, is. I, I think that the perception with a, a lot of people is that it's just about the art world at the moment. And then it's nerds, you know, swapping pictures of monkeys for, <laughs> for, for magic <laughs> internet money. Um, but, uh, NFTs go beyond that. This, we, we <laughs> well, there's, there's the NFTs have real utility. So beyond the world of art where they do solve real problems, um, you know, um, just around validity of art, um, uh, et cetera, it's, it's a certificate of ownership. essentially. Um, But if you look at the world of decentralized finance, NFTs are used on protocols like Uniswap, for example, to represent liquidity positions. So when I bring assets to the Uniswap protocol, which enables um, a distributed platform for people to swap one asset for another, so I could uh, trade ZARP for Ethereum, for example, on Uniswap. Um, When you add liquidity to those platforms, it's an NFT that's issued and given to you that represents your stake in that liquidity pool. So there's very real utility and very real problems that are being solved with NFTs. Um, and because they're not as sexy as Pictures of Monkeys and Snoop Dogg rapping at the Video Music Awards, they don't get talked about as much. But but NFTs are absolutely part of, of, of the setup. The stablecoins themselves, however, um, use a different standard. Most of them are ERC-20 tokens, um, typically on the Ethereum network. Um, And those more closely resemble Ethereum itself as a token and and less as an NFT, which is non-fungible.
0: Right. Tell me a bit more about ZARP. Um, How successful has it been? When was it launched, first of all? How successful has it been? Um, Have you got some stats around how it's being used? (laughs)
1: Look, it's early days, Duncan. We we launched it roughly a year ago and... um, you know given given what we wanted to do, which was really come up with with the most trusted cryptocurrency project in South Africa, um there was a lot of background work that we needed to do um, just to put things in place. So the first thing we did was um, work with a, a local audit group um, to bring an auditor on board so that we would have independent attestation of our cash reserves from day one. So if I go to market and go, hey, I've got this cryptocurrency that's worth one rand, as I alluded to earlier, your first question should be, why? Why is it worth one rand? And if my answer is because there's one rand in the bank for every token we issue on the blockchain, your next question should be, says who? How do I know that those rands are actually there? Why should I trust you? And those are good questions to ask. And so our answer to the question is we've got independent auditors that verify our cash reserves. So don't believe us. Um, You know, look at the independent attestation reports that are put out by our auditors, um, and we're going to keep a trail of those. We're actually working on a new version of our website where you'll be able to go back and and view the attestation reports since day one. So it is a bit of a process just to, to, you know, kind of expose auditors to this world. and, And the obvious thing they need to do as well is they need to compare our cash reserves sitting now with Old Mutual Wealth, um, with the token supply on the blockchain. So we also had to show them, you know, how you use a block explorer to go and verify the token supply. Of course, the beautiful thing about that is anybody can go and verify the token supply. So, you know, with cash reserves, you, you wouldn't be able to go and answer, ask a financial institution for statements for somebody else's account. Um, but in the case of of the Zapt uh, token contract on Ethereum, you can actually use a block explorer like EtherScan. Go and look at the contract and see exactly how many um, tokens we've issued for yourself. Um, anyway, it was a process to get get auditors up to speed, and then also to think about treasury management. Where do our cash reserves sit? Um, you know, who are the correct partners to do that with? So, so that's been a process, and then also you know working with our legal partners to make sure that from a, a legal perspective we're not uh, contravening the Banks Act, um, that we're aligning with what existing regulation there is. Um, of course you know there 's nothing specific to digital assets yet that 's coming soon, um, but there 's more general regulation that we wanted to make sure we were complying with. you know do we need to register ourselves with the financial intelligence center? The answer to that question was yes, so we did so a lot of work was was done behind the scenes, bringing on the right partners, setting up the ecosystem, developing the technology, um, and then we we did start rolling that out over the last year. Um, At its height, we had about 3.6 million dollars, or at the time, I think about 67 million rand in in ZARP tokens issued. Um, That's reduced substantially uh, recently. Um, I think that has more to do with the (laughs) the macroeconomic environment and the price of the rand in general. I think everybody's long dollars at the moment. So um, that's reduced substantially. Um, OVEX is our first exchange partner. So they're the first centralized exchange where you can swap actual rand for ZARP and vice versa. They've also got a Zarp savings account that they've introduced to the market, so you can earn a return on holding Zarp with them. Um, we started to to inject liquidity into Uniswap and Curve um, and other decentralized platforms and protocols um, because we really do think that that's the future. Um, but other than that, it's it's still early days. So we've got things set Ooh. up nicely now, and it's time to grow.
0: And I suppose a lot of learnings along the way and you're actually helping holding the hands of regulators as well because I'm sure they're also learning along, this, along the route.
1: Yes, we've, we've had a few engagements with the Reserve Bank um, and there's a good conversation that's, that's forming there. Um, and that's really our view is you know, we're here to work with the regulators to help um, kind of shape the, the environment and also to, to kind of um, think about what this means in the South African context. Um, it's always tempting to look at what's done in other jurisdictions and, and just assume that we could do the same thing here. Um, but there, there are all sorts of things. you know, There are nuances around foreign exchange control, for example, in South Africa that don't exist in most countries. Um, and there's, of course, a philosophical discussion to be had and, and one that Mark Shuttleworth has, has, has made more than philosophy when it comes to whether or not we should have foreign exchange control at all. But for better or for worse, it's here. So we have to you know, deal with it and think about that too. So really, we uh, part of part of the. Sorry, how does foreign exchange control affect ZOB? Well, so so you know it doesn't really from our perspective because we don't allow uh, foreign entities to transact via us at all. So we won't onboard a a foreign institution to issue ZOB, for example. Um, There's no reason why um, you know foreign entities shouldn't be able to access our token on the blockchain if they're outside of the jurisdiction um but there 's there 's some more general questions being asked in cryptocurrency outside of just stable coins in terms of foreign exchange control um, you know again, the foreign exchange control act is a fairly old piece of policy it you know comes from the apartheid years in South Africa. Not all of it makes a large amount of sense, to be honest. So, for example, according to the Foreign Exchange Controls Act, it's illegal for a South African to leave the country with more than 600 rand in clothing on them. <laughs> so, we've probably all broken it inadvertently. Um, uh, but anyway, so so you you know. I think you'd probably be familiar, and your viewers would be familiar, with, with the idea of a single discretionary allowance, or the idea that South Africans may only take up to a million rand of value outside of the country in any given tax year. Um, if you want to do more than that, you need to apply for special permission from um, from SARS. Uh, so all of that is part of of you know foreign exchange control. And then the obvious question is, well, if I'm buying cryptocurrencies, you know, does that affect foreign exchange control? It shouldn't if I'm you know, just a South African doing it on Luno in South Africa, for example. What happens if I send that Bitcoin to somebody in Japan Then, because you know, now there's value leaving the country? And if you do that via the traditional banking system, you have to file what's referred to as a BOP report with, um, with the, the Reserve Bank to give them the heads up that you're sending money outside of the country or get the correct permissions depending on what the, the setup is. Um, but of course, on the internet and on the blockchain, borders are imaginary things. They don't exist to the Bitcoin network. You know, Bitcoin is going to treat us the same whether I'm sending the cash to somebody sitting in the same room as me or on the other side of the planet. <laughs> um, so there's the obvious question of, well, A, do these policies still make sense whether or not they ever ever did is another question (laughs) but that's the first obvious question then b is um you know supposing that you should be doing something about foreign exchange control can you because how are you going to police this you know um you've got this activity happening on the internet i i presume most south africans who are transacting in cryptocurrency don't even know that foreign exchange control exists and aren't familiar with the policies um so they're inadvertently potentially breaking laws that they have no knowledge of. <laughs> um, so it's an, interesting, it's an interesting kettle of fish uh, and, and one we need to swim in quite carefully. Um, but, you know, we're here to play a ball with the regulators and make sure that we do the right thing. So lots of interesting discussions.
0: Certainly <laughs> the Reserve Bank gets a lot of praise for the way it ma- manages monetary policy in South Africa and the way it's mm. managing interest rates at the moment, for example, in an inflationary environment. But do you think they're doing the right stuff around uh, crypto? Do you think they're uh, keeping up with What's happening? Do you think they're moving mm-hmm. quickly enough?
1: I've been very impressed with the, the Reserve Bank and, and, more specifically, the intergovernmental fintech working group um, that's running, uh, representing all of the various financial authorities in South Africa, so the FSCA and PASA for Payments and etc. Um, and uh, you know, most recently, the intergovernmental fintech working group put out a position paper, just really outlining their understanding of, of cryptocurrency or digital assets and and where they think the concerns are. Um, so they've come up with this term, which is being used in some other jurisdictions as well, of a crypto asset service provider, um, which similarly to a financial services provider will eventually have um, bespoke regulation um, and will have to comply with with certain things. Um, you know, companies that are deemed CASPs are already um, being assumed as accountable institutions, which means they need to be registered with a financial intelligence center for um, uh, suspicious transaction monitoring something we wholeheartedly support of course we don't want criminal activity on our networks um, and we want to help mitigate it as far as possible um, so i actually you know i i think the working group has done a fantastic job of understanding um, the space um, you know appreciating that they don't want to stifle innovation and they want to enable this in south africa um, and producing a, a formidable position paper on it um, and really understanding the lay of the land and and now it's the job of the regulators to actually um, Implement licensing regimes, etc. That make sense in the context of that that position paper So yes, I've been I've been very I've been very impressed with the work done so far
0: Good good Now you made an announcement. Um, I think it was a week ago Maybe two weeks ago that you are now working with Old mutual wealth uh, hmm. Not Weathers, I accidentally called them on the website. <laughs> uh, and uh, they're now acting as the treasury for ZARP, is that right?
1: So they're managing our cash reserves, um, and we're very proud of that. Uh, Old Mutual Wealth, of course, is, is the country's oldest trust company. <laughs> and um, they have a, a, it's actually specifically a division of Old Mutual Wealth that, that does um, treasury advisory services, as they call it. Um, and And really you know having having them looking after our cash reserves puts us in a great position um, and I think also lends us some credibility as well um, because you've got old mutual happily to to for us to to speak publicly about the fact that they're involved in the project and looking after yeah. our our cash reserves so yeah,' very proud of that announcement and and i've I've loved our engagement with the old mutual wealth team. Um, they really are on the ball um they're thinking about where the world is going and the world of money is going and uh yeah it's been a, it's been a it's been very good for us so far. Mm-hmm.
0: Good stuff. Now, I have to ask you this in light yeah. of what happened earlier this year with was, there, was it Terra Luna or Terra USD? What was the name of the uh stable coin? So
1: Terra Luna was the the network and uh UST was the stable coin um on on the Terra Luna network. UST. Okay. Yes.
0: Uh, so that collapsed so i have to ask the question how safe are stable
1: coins <laughs> uh, well again uh, not all stable coins are, are created equally you know it's, it's sort of like asking how safe are, are stocks um, and you know theoretically very safe but you're still going to have a stein off every now and then <laughs> and us right. you yeah. know terra luna was 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 sort of the stein off of the, <laughs> the crypto world um, Because it, it, you know, without getting into too many details, it was basically a giant Ponzi scheme (laughs) that came apart. Oh, was it? Okay. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there was nothing backing the value, really. And, you know, they they had created a protocol called Anchor um, that you could lock your UST into um, and present it as collateral for loans, etc. And you could earn 19% as a return on, you know, 19% per annum or APY, as we say. Um, on, that, on, on whatever you had locked in the protocol. And then the obvious question is, well, where's this 19% coming from? You know, And if you're just creating th- tokens out of thin air and giving it back to people, what's the value? And you know, as with all great Ponzi's, it just relies on new people coming in all the time and falling for it. Um, right. Anyway, it was not to be, but it was also predictably not to be. <laughs> How much damage did it do, though, to investor confidence? Um, I think to people not paying too much attention or just generally not understanding what's happening in the world of cryptocurrency it it did irreparable damage for for many. I think it made a lot of regulators sit up and take attention which is not necessarily a a bad thing. but other than that, uh, you know, I saw a lot of positives come from it as well because it really showed how resilient the the real projects are, um, the real stablecoins are. You know, you look at USDC for example, which to us is the gold standard of stablecoins, um, and it didn't affect the price at all; hardly shifted. Um, so you know, USDC was worth one dollar before, during, and after the Terra Luna collapse. Um, and then there there were sort of uh, shockwaves that went out through the industry. And that, combined with general macro uh, economic environment and inflation rates running amok, et etc wars in in Europe um, and everything else that that was negatively impacting markets um, sort of brought down a lot of crypto projects and companies. Um, so you may have heard of Celsius, which was uh, you know one company, yes. um, one emperor that had no clothes, <laughs> um, and there was three arrows capital. Uh, and a whole bunch of others um, that when the waves went out, we saw them standing on the beach without their swimming costumes on. Um, And that was bad for them, uh, but it meant that the the good guys uh, who were left standing um, had some validity for what they were doing. And uh, what I especially enjoyed was, if you look at the decentralized finance protocols, you know, Compound, Aave, all of the blue chips, um, didn't affect them at all. Um, and showed the value of having fully collateralized loan markets in transparent protocols that anybody can go and query. Um, I think it also made it obvious that when it comes to protocols, we don't need regulation. Um, there's nobody to protect and there's, there's nothing to protect them from. It's a, it's, it's a protocol. It's a tool. And yes, some people will misuse it, etc. Um, but they fully collateralized. The code is on the blockchain. It's public for anybody to go and view as are the collateral reserves. So you can go and see if Compound claims to have X amount of Ethereum locked into a collateral pool. You can go and verify that for yourself. Um, So really these these protocol-driven sort of blue-chip DeFi products, if you will, um, this all really just made them look even better than they did before from my perspective.
0: Should consumers simply stay away from uh, stablecoins that aren't backed one-to-one in treasury vaults?
1: I'm not about to begin to tell people <laughs> what to do. I mean, I would say generally with cryptocurrency, you, you shouldn't have any money in it that you're not willing to lose as a principle um, but But yes, I you know instead of just telling them to stay away, i'd say just ask the obvious questions if If somebody's telling you something that sounds too good to be true, then it almost definitely is <laughs> um, oh. And if somebody's claiming that that what they're doing has value, ask them why, um, and then look at how you can verify that. You know again those those obvious questions if it's worth one rand, how, and if you 're claiming to have money in the bank, how can I believe you? Um, you know why should I believe you? Is there an independent auditor who agrees with you? Does everything make sense? You know if you 've got five million rand in the bank and you 've got one billion tokens issued, why you know where are the hundred, other nine hundred and ninety five million <laughs> and what are you doing with them um, so So just ask the obvious questions, I suppose. Uh, no. Generally, I, th- I think we're learning that the only way to, to really run a stable coin is to fully collateralize it. Um, you know, Cash reserves are the obvious way to do it. It's a very honest way to do it. Um, ironically, that's not how the traditional financial world works because banks in the traditional financial world don't have to collateralize anything. They can, they, they run what were are referred to as fractional reserves, and in some countries yep. that can be less than 5% of the money they claim to have on their books. Just something to think about. That's why Um, when there's a
0: run on banks, you often see banks falling over quite quickly.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, it's obviously more complicated than that because you've got government um, who who represents the land of last resort, and theoretically the system should have enough money to help a bank recover from a run on the bank. Um, But in our world, uh, the more collateral, the better. And so with ZARP, we actually aim to be over-collateralized. So... Um you know if we 're doing our job properly in the future we hope to we hope to have more than one rand in the bank for every ZARP token out there. We want to be over collateralized um okay yeah so when
0: when do you start working you're working with Ovex at the moment do you start to work with other crypto exchanges at some point as well
1: we're in discussions with many of them um Unfortunately, the way that the exchange world has evolved means that, especially globally, a lot of exchanges want you to pay them to to list your token, <laughs> which we just principally will no, not right. do. Yeah, um, okay. so it means that uh, we have to, you know, we have to be a little bit smart about how we do things. We can't just throw money at the problem, and we don't think that we should have to. And um, it's early days, so we, we you know, we, we we're sort of uh, aware of that too, and and the fact that we we kind of need to earn our place on the exchanges. Um, but to be honest, you know, as, as I said earlier, so much of that activity is, is moving on-chain and into decentralized finance that um, I'm not sure it'll matter in time. Uh, I mean, if you've if you've had any experience using um, protocols like Uniswap or Balancer, especially on you know um, uh, layer two chains or roll-ups like Arbitrum, um, they're fast, they're cheap, they're efficient. You don't have to ask anybody for permission. You shouldn't have to. Um, You've already kyc to get your money into the system, and now it's in that system, and you can do stuff with it. Um, They're programmable, so they can be built into other applications more efficiently. Um, So we're really building for the future of decentralized finance, and that's our primary focus.
0: Fascinating stuff. So, if I want to buy some ZARP, how do I go about it? Do I go to Ovex? Is that my choice? Can I buy it's somewhere your best, else?
1: It's your best choice is to go to Ovex. Um, we are not doing, uh, yeah, we are not doing um, minting or burning with uh, with retail uh, clients just yet. Um, so, you need to work through an Ovex for now. Um, there are a lot of projects that uh, will make ZARP available in other ways, and very interestingly, that are on their way. Unfortunately, I can't talk about any of them just yet. I'm under NDA with most of them. But um, we're having a lot of very interesting discussions that I'm looking forward to sharing with you over the next year or two. (laughs) Good stuff.
0: Good stuff. Now, excuse me if this is an ignorant question, but right now, if I wanted to, I could go and mine a Bitcoin, Mm -hmm. create my own Bitcoin. I, I might not be able to do it profitably, but I can do it. Can you do the same thing with stable coins?
1: No. Um, so, you know, if anybody could go and, and uh, impact the supply of the stablecoin, it would be very difficult to manage the underlying cash reserves to make sure that you're fully collateralized. Uh, um, right. So mining doesn't exist in in our world. Um, there are various strategies that stablecoin projects adopt. Um, we think the most honest way to do it is to be constantly burning and minting a supply of ZARP to match our cash reserves. What does that mean? Well, minting just means creating new tokens. Um, so it's a function of our smart contract. Um, we are the only entity that can do that because we hold the private keys that enable us to, to issue new ZOP. Um, and then conversely, burning is destroying tokens. Um, so if somebody withdraws uh, RAND from us, they have to send us the ZARP tokens that represent that RAND value, and we actually then destroy those tokens. Um, so, you know, every now and then we'll rebalance the token supply according to the cash reserves and we'll make sure that they, as far as possible, are always matching. Uh, and then our auditors will go and verify that. Um, but that does mean that mining doesn't exist directly for Zop. Zop, of course, does go through mining pools because the Ethereum network is constantly being mined and that's how transactions are being verified. Um, and Zop is, is part of that, that set of protocols, but um, uh, not for token generation. Okay, fascinating.
0: Well, you've just mentioned Ethereum, and I, I want to switch the conversation in a different direction Now. And talk about the merge, which is this uh move mm. from pr- proof of work to proof of stake, which uh, took place a couple uh, last week, I think it was mm. um, and there were before it happened, there were a lot of people saying this could go spectacularly wrong. This is a software <laughs> project it could fail hopelessly, it could be a disaster. It came along, it happened, and nothing happened really. We mm-hmm. moved from proof of work to proof of stake. Firstly, what is proof of work? What is proof of stake? Why was the merge important? And why did the guys behind Ethereum do it?
1: Sure. There's a, there's a lot to the answer. So, okay, let's start with proof of work because that was a, a, an idea that was introduced to the world by Satoshi Nakamoto, who's the pseudonymous inventor right. of Bitcoin. Um, and really, it's a consensus mechanism. It's a way for computers to prove that they've done something. <laughs> um, and the reason you needed proof of work was to enable... Um, settlement on the Bitcoin network without relying on trusted third parties. And that's absolutely fundamental because it means that I can send Bitcoin from my wallet to your wallet, Duncan, and we don't need any intermediaries, we don't need any middlemen, we don't need a bank, we don't need somebody to verify the transaction because that verification is happening in the network itself. So proof-of-work enables what we refer to as a trustless network uh, where we can transact peer-to-peer directly. So that's, that's, that's the basic idea. It's also the reason why you shouldn't be listening to anybody telling you you need your own blockchain or a centralized blockchain. Because the moment you're introducing a central authority into, into a blockchain, you're negating all of that proof of work overhead. So you're just wasting compute resources now and achieving nothing because you've got a, a trusted third party that's required in the equation. Um, so, sorry to all of the management consultants telling their clients that they should build their own blockchain, but <laughs> it just conceptually makes no sense. Um, so that's proof of work. Um, and without getting into the details of it, which I could carry on about all day, because I'm obsessed with <laughs> the with stuff, as you can tell, um, it works and it works very well in the context of Bitcoin. Proof of stake is, is similar, but has uh, some fundamental differences. And the biggest one is that in proof of work, you're, you're proving that you've done something. And you're doing something by applying compute cycles to a, a protocol, and that requires quite a lot of resources in terms of, of compute to actually hash through these algorithms and produce an answer to, um, to a conundrum of sorts. Um, with proof of stake, you kind of work around the need for all of that compute resource by instead paying for the right to, to um, process transactions up front. Um, so you're locking a stake into the network um, that's buying you a seat as a as a miner if you will to process transactions or what what are referred to as validators in in the ethereum world um, other than that you know practically it works very similarly. there is a concern that seems to reside mostly in the mind of bitcoin maximalists as we call them um, that proof of stake tends more towards um, centralization um, and to regulatory capture of the Ethereum blockchain. Both of those ideas are nonsense and are not playing out in reality so far. Um, I'll get a lot of angry tweets again for saying this, but I'm not afraid to because it's just true. (laughs) Um, But what we're we're actually seeing um, in practice is that uh, proof of stake actually is tending towards more distribution. And we can get into the reasons uh, for that if if you'd like. But for the same reason, you know, uh, a lot of people accuse the Bitcoin network of being centralized around some big mining pools, which used to predominantly be in China. And that's true. There are, you know, five mining pools that represent most of the mining activity on the Bitcoin network. But each of those pools is constituted by, you know, tens of thousands of individual miners um, that are fully distributed and can switch their hashing to another pool at the drop of a hat. So it's lazy to say that Bitcoin mining is centralized. Once you understand what that means, it's you know, it just isn't. It's equally lazy to say that proof of stake is centralized around the big validators. Because if you look at the biggest validation pools like Lido, for example, Lido is also an aggregate of many independent miners that are just pooling their activity um, into that, that single pool and can also switch out of that pool and, and can validate on their own or for somebody else as easily if not more easily than you can in proof of work so proof of stake is decentralized <clears throat> the um, environmental impact is an interesting thing we might get into because there's a lot of nonsense in that discussion as well um but it's the reality is that let's
0: talk about it now because one of the biggest benefits that, that of, of this merge has been that the energy consumption from the ethereum network has dropped i believe by over 99 percent that it was yes. using the energy equivalent of a country the size of the netherlands is that true
1: Uh, The media, (laughs) I always hate saying the media because there's nothing wrong with the media, but there have been some terrible headlines around this. Um, And and of course, the more extreme the headline, the more clicks you get. Um, So in the worst case scenario, you've gotten some journalists who've gotten it completely wrong and they think that one Bitcoin transaction (laughs) uses as much electricity as a household in North America. Just nonsense. And they're conflating um, blocks of transactions with singular transactions. And it's very curious because some of them definitely know better. But anyway, let's not get into the conspiracy side of it. Um, <laughs> but let's let's talk about the reality. Uh, so, so firstly, Bitcoin does use a, a lot of electricity. It absolutely does. Anything done at scale by human beings requires large amounts of resources, um, and things that use electricity are nothing new. Um, so, how big is is Bitcoin's um, you know uh, consumption? You could compare it to a small country, but if you compare it to other things human beings do, Bitcoin uses less electricity than all of the world's tumble dryers, for example. So tumble dryers are, are massively useful. I'm not suggesting that people shouldn't use them. But you know, there, there are other options. You don't have to use an appliance to dry your clothes. You can also just hang it on the washing line, and, and nature will do its thing. Um, and you'll save the world a lot of electricity. So if we just all stopped tumble drying our clothes, we'd save more electricity than Bitcoin uses. Um, another activity that uses more electricity than the Bitcoin network is Christmas lights in North America alone. So all the Christmas lights that go up every festive season in North America, those, and again, I'm not detracting from their value, I love walking through an American city, <laughs> you know, during Christmas, it's beautiful. <laughs> um, but we could save more electricity than the Bitcoin network if we stopped doing that too. Now, you can carry on with these comparisons all day. YouTube uses roughly, you know, depending who you speak to, somewhere between 25 and 200 times the electricity that that the Bitcoin network does. The real question is, what are you getting in exchange for those resources? And of course, with Bitcoin, you get one of the best settlement networks ever designed. (laughs) Um, I think anybody arguing against the utility of Bitcoin just honestly hasn't taken the time to research it enough at this point. Um, So we do get something for that value. And of course, at some stage, you have to talk about the thing that Bitcoin was designed to replace, because the traditional financial system uses an inordinate amount of resources. It might not be electricity directly, although it would be interesting to know exactly how much electricity is consumed by bank branches and ATMs every year. But we'll never figure that out. Right. It's theoretical. Um, but if you look at resources more generally, um, and especially executive salaries at large banks, where they have thousands of people <laughs> earning massive salaries, driving big cars, flying in private jets, owning holiday homes, you know that resource consumption is also massive. So do those people deserve it or not? That's not for me to say. Um, it's just interesting that of all the things one could accuse the Bitcoin network of, you, they've, Bitcoin's critics have ch- chosen what's arguably the most lazy response <laughs> to the whole thing. Sure. What's fascinating, though, is that there's a, a growing amount of research that's building up about Bitcoin actually being environmentally friendly because it gives us ways of curtailing uh, excess power generation. Um, and doing things like methane capture, um, that there's now an economic incentive for. Um, so a lot of methane leaks into the atmosphere from you know various things. And again, I'm not an I'm not an expert on climate change or the science here. So you know take what I'm saying with a pinch of salt. Um, but if you can capture that methane, then there are various ways to do that. You now have an economic incentive to do that because if you if you turn that into electricity and use it to mine Bitcoin. You've basically got a money battery, if you will, and you can store the the value from that activity. Another great example is with um, what's referred to as flaring. So, you know, in, in places like North America, especially, you've got uh, these gas production plants um, generating electricity from gas that's being released from the ground um, due to fracking. Now, again, I don't want to get into <laughs> the philosophical discussion or the ethical discussion around fracking and whether or not that should have happened, but it has. Um, and and those Power plants actually produce, too much gas is produced for those plants and, and so what they do with the excess gas or what they used to do was literally set it on fire, right, so environmentally terrible just burning all the extra gas coming out of the ground. Now you could actually generate um, from that excess gas stored in the form of Bitcoin and Bitcoin is actually saving the environment in a lot of ways. So it's a, it's a very, it's a, it's a fascinating discussion as always, it's more complicated than most people assume. Um, But yes, proof-of-stake does use less electricity, for better or for worse. Again, um, you're swapping that for having to have 32 Ethereum up front, because to buy your stake to run a single validator on the Ethereum network, you need 32 ETH, which is, you know, that's a lot of money. Um, So, God giveth and God taketh away, and there's only so much one can do about about where the resources come from and where they go. Um, But from a purely hardware perspective, you can now run an Ethereum validator on something as simple as a Raspberry Pi that'll cost you a few hundred rand. Um, you will need quite a large hard drive to plug into it to store the blockchain, <laughs> because the Ethereum blockchain is massive. You don't need the whole blockchain anymore, and you can do it with cheaper hardware, etc. But, but yes, that's it in a nutshell.
0: Fascinating. So, so just explain to me then why uh, the developers behind Ethereum decided to move from proof-of-work to proof-of-stake.
1: Uh, So so there were a few reasons for the decision. Um, The one is to, to quite honestly, to drive distribution. Because all of the Ethereum mining before this was done predominantly using graphics cards for the hashing. Um, Ethereum is what we call ASIC resistance. And and ASIC are are application-specific integrated circuits, or computers designed to do just one thing. So in Bitcoin mining, <clears throat> that's dominated now by ASICs because they hash more efficiently on this particular algorithm, so SHA-256 in the case of Bitcoin, um, you know, more, more efficiently than even, than even the, the most expensive graphics cards or GPUs. Um, Ethereum decided strategically to be ASIC resistant um, to encourage more generic hashing using more generic hardware. Um, which means that GPUs are used predominantly for, for Ethereum. And that's fine, but it doesn't scale spectacularly well. GPUs are expensive. Um, the world has chip shortages, et cetera. Gamers think that uh, Ethereum miners are robbing them of their new GPUs, whereas that's more complicated than that as well. But we won't get into that discussion. Um, so, so just general efficiency, scalability, distribution. Um, but also it's a way to bring down fees and make the Ethereum network more efficient because proof of stake... Um, is is more efficient. And that combined with a lot of other standards that have been introduced both before the merge and and coming after the merge um, will will just generally make make Ethereum more efficient um, and and hopefully bring down gas fees on the network. Now, what are gas fees? So gas fees are basically transaction fees. It's the the money you pay for submitting a transaction to the Ethereum network. Um, Gas is calculated in a unit called GWAI. Um, GWEI, which represents 1 18th of an an Ethereum token. Um, And uh, that rate is variable depending on how much activity there is on the network. So you're basically paying for priority in having your transaction processed. So if you're willing to pay more gas, your transaction will be processed more quickly because the miners are going to, well, now the validators are going to prioritize uh, the transactions that they earn the, the highest transaction fee from um so that's that's how gas works in 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 a nutshell and gas on the ethereum network um is paid in ethereum itself so you have to have a little bit of of gas in the tank or of ethereum in your wallet before yeah. you can do anything else um there, and there are new standards coming along EIPs as we refer to them um that'll change that where you can actually pay in the token you're sending etc um and then of course there are so many new blockchains and uh Uh, out there that that compete with Ethereum and have various ways of thinking about this and doing it entirely differently for some of them.
0: So Simon, uh, I've I've been reading quite a bit about something called the flippening happening, Mm. possibly at some point Mm -hmm. uh, on the back of the merge, where um, the Ethereum market cap flips with Bitcoins and Ethereum becomes the
1: most valuable cryptocurrency. Do you think that's a possibility? It's definitely possible. Um, I'm not sure whether or not it will happen. you know, there's a, I can't remember who originally said it, but there's sort of a, a mantra in the Ethereum community that, that Bitcoin was the idea and Ethereum's the execution. <laughs> um, now, when I say the Ethereum community, I, I tend to be more agnostic about these things. So, um, you know, <clears throat> with my company with ZARP, the first chain we deployed on was Ethereum, but we're also deployed on Phantom, we're looking at Solana. Um, and I'm most excited about the Bitcoin lightning network because there's a new protocol for lightning that enables stable coins on the lightning network. And Zop will be there when that's ready. So we have a multi-chain strategy. So I do not have a horse in this race, um, but I am a, a Bitcoiner. I consider myself to be one. And I've been working with Bitcoin since 2011. So it's been interesting watching this conversation take shape and evolve over the years. Um, And I think, you know, we need to remember that Ethereum was announced at a Bitcoin conference. That's where the world first heard about Ethereum. And Bitcoiners were very excited about Ethereum in the beginning. I was, and we thought it was a fantastic project. And we certainly didn't see this as a zero-sum game. Or we didn't see Bitcoin and Ethereum as mutually exclusive. Um, You know, we, we just saw this as good for the entire community and ecosystem. So that's very much where I come from. I consider myself to be an original Bitcoiner. Unfortunately... A lot of Bitcoiners have taken on a cult-like appreciation of, of, you know, this magic internet money that they discovered yesterday. Um, And uh, there's this weird ideological alignment with a lot of them. So, you know, um, being pretty extreme in their libertarian views comes with it, whereas, you know, one can't argue that the early Bitcoiners weren't libertarian, but I think they were more moderate about it, (laughs) to be quite honest. Um, and one could get into the cypherpunk movement, etc. but be that as it may. And then there's also all sorts of other curiosities around eating red meat. And there seems, to be, there seems to be a Christian ideological slant to a lot of this as well. But, you know, by any parameter I look at it, it's starting to resemble a cult, the Bitcoin maximalists, you know. It's oh, our idea good, your idea bad. We only eat this. We only do, you know, it's, it's very weird and I, don't, I want no part of it. Oh. Yeah, it is a bit bizarre. Um, but so obviously, you know, if you speak to those people who also consider themselves to be Bitcoiners, um, they'll tell you that the flippening will never happen and that Ethereum is what they call a shit coin. I'm not sure if I can say that on your show, can bleep it out, (laughs) but anything that's not Bitcoin is evil and Ethereum is the most evil, um, complete nonsense, of course. Um, why could Ethereum flip Bitcoin? Well, Ethereum transfers more value than Bitcoin does already, that's just a fact. Um, Because Ethereum has uh, a system for smart contracts, there are a lot of things represented on the Ethereum network alone. So stable coins are one of them. There are no stable coins on Bitcoin, because they can't be. Um, We used to have an idea referred to as colored coins in the early day of Bitcoin that could have theoretically enabled something like a stable coin. Unfortunately, Bitcoin moved away from that idea pretty quickly. But you know, stable coins, loan markets, um, you know, other tokens, whether it's Shiba Inu, and we can argue about how valid they are and whether or not they should have any value, but but some of them undoubtedly do. So that's that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is that as part of the merge, and, and with, with EIPs before it, Ethereum has become deflationary. So there's a lot of discussion in the crypto community and, and elsewhere around monetary supply, if you will, um, and whether inflation is good or bad or deflation. Of course, Bitcoin has a finite supply and it's deflationary from that perspective. So um, there'll only ever be 21 million Bitcoins and of course they're divisible by um, sats or a hundred millionth of a Bitcoin, um, et cetera. We can shift decimals. Um, but you know, by the time the last Bitcoin is mined, there'll only be 21 million of them. Never more, never less. Um, When Ethereum first got going, its supply was um, metered monthly, but was theoretically infinite. And that's changed fundamentally now. So the supply of, of Ethereum is actually being reduced now. And the way that's being done is every time you pay uh, gas fees or transaction fees on the Ethereum network, a percentage of those fees are destroyed or burned. The tokens from them are taken out of the network. Um, so, so as more and more people use Ethereum, its supply is actually decreasing now. And Ethereum is hyper deflationary, if you will, um, from that perspective. Okay. Now, again, it's very hard to say whether or not that's a good or bad thing. Theoretically, we can discuss it. Time will tell. Um, but it does mean that, you know, if demand does its thing on Ethereum the way that it has over the last, you know, whatever years since since Ethereum first hit the ground in 2016, then eventually you can imagine Ethereum's uh, value overtaking Bitcoins. But of course, it depends what happens in the Bitcoin world because we're starting to see retail investors, oh, sorry, institutional investors, get into Bitcoin in a in a more formidable way. Um, you know, we're seeing retirement funds starting to add Bitcoin to their balance sheet. They're not doing that with Ethereum. Uh, so Bitcoin's value is also going to build up and this is an interesting time to be having that discussion because cryptocurrency is in another lull with the rest of the market. It's crashed again for the nine billionth time since I started <laughs> looking at it. Um, so so you know, I think a lot of people uh, don't think of this as, as appreciating in value in any way, but it will again. and. Uh, Yeah, I mean, so I I don't have a strong opinion on how desirable the Flippening is or whether or not it will happen, but it certainly is possible.
0: Simon, before I let you go, over the next 12 months, what are you watching for in crypto? What are you most excited about? uh,
1: Yeah, what's, What's coming next? There's just so much happening. So one of one of the interesting things I've been looking at is the idea of soulbound tokens. I'm not sure if you've heard of these, but this is the the next no. evolution after NFTs. Is a token that um, not only is not fungible, but actually can't can't be sent from one wallet to another at all. So once it's in your Ethereum wallet, it's locked there, and it can only ever be in your Ethereum wallet. Um, now that's interesting for a number of potential use cases. One of them could be a university degree, for example. Another could be a national identity in time. Um, Or maybe there's a passport token that's locked into Duncan's wallet and only Duncan's wallet. Um, And of course, there are challenges that come with that because what if Duncan loses his keys and somebody else gets access to his wallet or hacks it? Um, And there are a lot of interesting potential solutions to that. One of them is social recovery where you could have um, a number of other keys, which may be held by your friends, family, lawyer, et cetera, that could then recover um, your, your soul bound tokens or reassign uh, ownership, et cetera. So, lots of interesting discussions happening in that space at the moment, um, very philosophical. But, you know, really, I think what I love about technology in general is just that you never know what to expect, you never know what's going to happen. Um, I love that, that quote that's attributed to to Bill Gates. With we always overestimate the change that'll happen in two years and underestimate what'll actually happen in ten. Um, you know, and I, I think back to the days of of us being technology journalists, watching Steve Jobs announce the iPhone on stage in two thousand and seven, which still feels like yesterday to me, Duncan. <laughs> I don't know about you, <laughs> showing up, showing our age perhaps. <laughs> but um, but you know we. I think we were all enamored with this new toy that apple had given the world and of course they weren't alone there were companies like blackberry doing amazing things in that department and nokia and, but nobody had an idea where smartphones were going in 10 years time you know the things we're doing with our phones today i mean i didn't see instagram coming i didn't see uber coming google maps you know it's just uh being a primary photography device etc there's just so much that's come with the smartphone that nobody expected So, when I first got into Bitcoin in 2011, you know, who had any idea, firstly, that it would reach the the heights that it has in terms of value? That's never really mattered to me much. But, you know, NFTs and all of the other things that we're doing, ICOs, et cetera, I had no idea that any of that was going to happen. Stablecoins, I mean, we kind of thought about it with the colored coin notion, but yeah, (laughs) it's just, it's taken on a life of its own. And so, uh, I suppose one year is easier to think about. but, uh, but I'm more just looking forward to finding out what comes next and acknowledging that I probably don't know what it is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Simon, we could chat all afternoon about cryptocurrencies and, and where tech is going. Hmm. And I think we need to invite you back on the show on a, on a fairly regular basis, actually, to talk about everything that's happening in the crypto space. Maybe we can time really six months or so Anytime. on what's happening. But, Always good to talk to you, Simon. Thanks for making the time and uh, best of luck with all your ventures and, and with Zarp. I look forward to seeing how that grows in the, year, the years ahead. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you, Duncan, and congrats on the show. I think it's a, it's a great addition to the landscape in South Africa and something that was missing from, from my, my podcatcher. So I'm looking forward to, to seeing where you go with it.
0: Well, thank you very much. And cool. All the best. Thanks, Duncan. Bye-bye.